0: Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information, and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. this episode, we're joined by Avi Mintz, University of Tulsa. Avi Mintz, welcome to Pipeline. Thanks for having me. So as you know the format of our program, I suppose it'd be best to start by asking you uh, how exactly you found the field of philosophy and
1: education. Uh, What was your entry? Well, um, one of the things that's been fascinating about listening to these podcasts, because I've listened to them all, um, is just how diverse everyone's entry into this field is. And I think Mm -hmm. that Kathleen Knight Appalitz at the beginning of hers that talked about that for a second, but, um, I think it actually explains somewhat about just how diverse our field is now, the fact that mm. people come in through such different entries you know yeah. like if you're going to, uh, your average sociology professor the, you can be pretty sure they did an undergraduate degree in sociology, sure. maybe something related, but they got a doctorate you know in sociology and mm. it's just not the not the same with that so here's my little um, story, which I think is maybe of interest only because it's just as um, different as everybody else is. Sure. um coming out of high school i was much better in math than other subjects and i really was interested in in psychology and philosophy but i thought that i should do the safe thing and, and work with my strengths and go to business school okay okay so um so i went to business school for two years but i always knew that i really wanted to do philosophy and psychology so i took electives mm. in philosophy um but it was at a big university, so it was a really big philosophy class. I liked it. I took a bunch of, a couple of logic classes because I really liked okay. it. But then I always knew I was going to do uh, a year abroad to really just do humanities courses like I wanted to do. And in that year abroad, I took two philosophy courses. One was on the first semester on Plato's Republic, okay. and the second f- semester was on Rousseau's Emile. <laughs> now, those okay. were like my two most formative experiences, and I think it's not a coincidence that I started thinking that problems of education were just part and parcel of what sure. philosophy does. And so I loved both those classes. They were both really small and we were reading really closely and really seriously all semester. Mm. And then by the time I was midway through that year, I decided I was going to transfer universities. Okay. I was going to go to the, uh, do philosophy at the university of Toronto where you could not only minor or major in philosophy, but you could do a specialist degree. So with only about two years left, I managed to pack in two full years of full philosophy courses. And then I did a master's. And I continued, I think, because of these experiences with Plato and Rousseau, I continued to be really interested in problems of education and Mm just... um, how how interesting they were to these great thinkers and how nuanced they were and how important they are to thinking about citizenship and um, society generally. Um, and so I continued in my other philosophy courses to think about problems of education then when it came to doing uh, applying for a PhD program, I applied, I think, to six programs. Okay. Five were in philosophy departments, and then one was the program at uh, Teachers College in philosophy and education, and I ended up going to the Teachers College program because I thought there I could really spend time with people who are also interested in the same sure. kind of problems of philosophy and education that I was, and I was a little worried that in a philosophy department, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be um, with the same... I wouldn't have other people. I, at a certain point, I realized not everyone was studying Plato's <laughs> Republic and Rousseau's Emile as like their core text. You know, Rousseau was a lot more popular in uh, political theory departments sure, than yeah. in philosophy. So I thought it would be a good fit for me intellectually then, and then um, that took me into my career and later employment in a department of educational studies. Okay, and that's where I find myself. So,
0: so okay, so uh, so at the beginning of your uh, uh, of your story here, you had the interest in math, uh, basically, well,
1: right? Well, math, I don't know if it was an interest; it was my strength. I, I was see. worried okay. about my. Ability to write papers. Okay. Like I, I was doing better in my in math subjects than English subjects.
0: But uh, but alongside that uh, uh, that ability, then you also had this interest in uh, in philosophy. And then, given a sort of, I guess you might call it a, a sampling error, uh, led you to believe that uh, philosophy was, uh, in some sense, about these educational issues. Now, when you continued on doing your work in philosophy, writing these papers and so forth. Um, was it the case that you found that uh, there was uh, sort of enough uh, to do regarding education uh, in these texts, uh, uh, Plato, uh, Rousseau, et cetera, um, or did you
1: have to move very far beyond those, uh, those thinkers into new domains? Uh, no, I actually found like, you know, virtually in every class I was doing, I found something, you know, I did a course on Nietzsche and, and the professor didn't talk about education at all, but Nietzsche talks about education sure. a lot. And, um, when I studied Spinoza, I was really interested in, like, everything he was saying in the th- theological, p- political treaties about sure. the role of how you study and teach the Bible sure. and create, you know, leading to the Enlightenment and the citizen. So I saw it all mm-hmm. over. Um, it seemed really natural okay. uh, to philosophy. And,
0: and looking back, did you, did you also notice that you had an interest in education that sort of predated philosophy, or was it really philosophy that brought that uh, that work on education out for you?
1: Yeah, I think... And that's a good question, and I, th- I think that's true. Like, I came, um, I came to these courses with a real interest in like informal in education. I had from high school on. I played a lot of uh, basketball, and mm-hmm. then uh, I ended up in one of the programs that I had been playing in coaching. So throughout college, I was already doing a lot of coaching, and I had done tutoring. And mm-hmm. my summer work experience was always like camp based things or like year round learning kind mm-hmm. of things for students so i was i was already interested in children and child mm-hmm. development in some ways so i think that's what probably particularly excited me in in mm-hmm. plato and rousseau and others and and um yeah, those interests have carried me a long way. I've never really let go of them.
0: So in line with a little bit of what you've been saying here, uh, what I'm hearing is uh, that as a young man, you were already thinking sort of uh, into the future about uh, what was going to be uh, uh, good for you, right? So in some sense, uh, avoiding those activities that might be perhaps unduly difficult or unduly painful, uh, uh, and instead uh, uh, choosing to gravitate towards those things that uh, uh, were for you uh, more interesting. Is that, is that accurate? Is that correct? There.
1: Yeah um yeah i think that's maybe fair i mean um yeah i i like a lot of like i see it now because i teach you sure. know 17 year olds all the time you know you spend a lot of time thinking about both what you're interested in and where there's actually careers so sure. so i was probably always um really type a and far thinking about sure. l- what kind of career would work for me but um Even when I switched to philosophy, I always kind of said to myself, like, well, this is my chance as an undergraduate to do philosophy. Hmm. You know, it's really hard to go back and do philosophy later, but you can always do an MBA later. Sure. And I was lucky. I had very, very supportive parents. Sure. My father's an economist, but one who I think secretly wishes he had majored in history. And he's an academic and has a lot of appreciation of of the humanities. So they were really supportive. Sure. my father said, oh, yeah, it's great when students in MBA programs have different backgrounds, do philosophy. Sure. And then, uh, yeah, and then I just, I did the MA and then another degree. And so far, I haven't left, but I guess there's still ch- <laughs> time for me to pick up my MBA. Sure,
0: sure, sure, forthcoming. So um, uh, maybe you might tell us a little bit about uh, our listeners. Tell our listeners a little bit about the types of projects that you've been working on. Um, uh, I mentioned, uh, uh, of course, um, uh, what, I mentioned, of course, the question of whether you uh, stuck with uh, with Plato, stuck with uh, uh, some of those ancient thinkers and Rousseau and so forth, and we also have talked a little bit about um, uh, thinking about education in terms of difficulty or perhaps pain. Um, uh, could you talk a little bit about some of your your, your your projects and your work
1: i I have spent a lot of my time working on on these on philosophers who I think had really um, sophisticated ways of thinking about education like like many people, I'm really seduced by Plato mm. and just how the idea of education permeates everything he does, not just explicitly in texts mm. that talk about education, like Republic or Mino or Laws, but in how he constructed a way of writing philosophy that is in itself educational, that yeah. it's about a conversation between people that forces the reader to engage the text yeah. in a, an educational way to like, mm. question yourself. So I just think that's so amazing. I never cease to be um, to feel wonder at that, to use a Platonic uh, term. Sure. And so I I have continued to do that, to work on texts like that, and I've been fortunate to be in a um, at a university where I've ha- I've been able to teach a lot of classes okay. um, on that. Uh, I teach an ancient Greece course in our Don't honors talk. program. This semester I'm teaching an Enlightenment course where I'm doing Don't Rousseau. Talk. Um, so that's really helped me kind of stay grounded in, in some of these ideas and some of these historical contexts that I, I think are um, really interesting. The other thing you were mentioning about difficulty is, is another problem uh, that I've been long interested in. Uh, I started. I did my first uh, course in education um, at... Yes, of course, the uh, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And They'd had a philosophy of education course, and since I was interested in philosophy of education, while I was doing my master's, I took their graduate course. And for the first time, I read Nell Noddings. And it was the same semester I was studying Nietzsche. And I think that the contrast of the two, like thinking about... So Nietzsche talks about just how... um, important it is that you're thwarted in your endeavors sure. and he describes it as really painful but that's the sort of thing that takes you um that's the the path to becoming a free spirit right. he talks about a free spirit the child uh, after you can emerge from like the time you rebel against things but he describes learning as a really painful process right. at the same time i was reading noddings who was talking about just how important it is for supportive, caring relationships mm-hmm. in teaching and parenting, and um, and so I, th- I thought a lot about like what I was hearing from people in at OISE. Sure. and um, and so then I started thinking about uh, because I was interested in this question. That's and what I ended up doing my dissertation on. Um, I kept thinking about the way we foreclose opportunities for students to struggle yeah. in productive ways, and um, and that's been a question that's i've continued to write about since my dissertation i've sometimes done that like through historical um, work like thinking about uh what rousseau has to say about emile's suffering which Mm. i think is really interesting um suffering in the socratic method and plato's dialogues uh, but i've also thought about it in terms of more contemporary context too Uh, i have something coming out soon in a Routledge Handbook on the Philosophy of Pain on on pain in education, Um, and then I I wrote a paper on pain and learning in social social justice education. So that's it's been a topic that's really let me stay with these kind of historical interests I have and contemporary more, American yeah, contemporary. education culture.
0: So uh, I wonder if you might then uh, provide our listeners, I mean I could imagine that some of our listeners might be uh, thinking to themselves, well of course suffering, pain, hardship, difficulty uh, those are the things that we ought to be sort of pressing against in education uh, could you give us some sense as, as to why uh, we might want to uh, leave a seat at the table for uh, uh, these types of uh, experiences
1: Well one of the one of the keys is I think sometimes there has been, um, a valorization of Mm. pain, which I think is a mistake. Okay. Um, there's a, a line, apparently a lot of progressive educators in the early 20th century used to say that the traditionalists, uh, didn't care what the students learned as long as they didn't like it. Okay. Right. Um, and then Isaac candle, who was a critic of progressive educators said the opposite, the progressives, don't care what what children learn as long as they do like it sure um and it's that kind of blanket um opposition that i think is problematic and i think actually rousseau who's celebrated Mm -hmm. as like this romantic wanting kids to be happy and explore on their own terms he actually Mm -hmm. talks a lot about distinguishing the right kind of challenges and struggles from Mm -hmm. the wrong kind of challenges and so i think that is what ought to be like the legacy of progressive education like getting rid of the Kind of struggles and challenges that aren't educationally productive right. that are um, demoralizing or humiliating or mm-hmm. um, or discouraging in a in a like, kind of fundamental way uh, from the good struggles, understanding that that some struggles are part and parcel of learning in fact, in the absence of struggle you're in you're not actually improving okay. if you're not making mistakes, and I think that's the big a big, um, a big problem in some ways. Sure. Um, American teachers, there's been some studies. They tend to jump in. They really worry if students are confused, so they tend right. to jump in as soon as they see confusion. It's like, oh no, that's learning. Learning is going to stop. Hmm. Uh, we must. Do, we have to do something about it, and so they'll start to re-explain. And in other cultures, um, l- struggling a little bit, being a bit confused is. Part of part of the process, sure. right? You got to struggle a little bit to get things conceptually in place for yourself. Sure. And so um, that's the kind of struggling I'm interested in—the kind uh, where students begin to normalize struggling as part of progress. Sure. And obviously, I don't. I don't think struggling that leads. Kids, you know, high school students, college students to drop out is a good idea. But what, like, how do we equip them, equip them with the right resources that they recognize um, their struggle in classrooms as as a good thing? Of yeah. course, it's something that should be frustrating and discouraging to some. Because if they're not agitated by this by the struggling, that's a problem. It's sure. not going to feel like a struggle, and they're not going to want to overcome it. Sure. But how can they? Can they own that struggle and do something productive with it? Yes, of
0: course. I mean, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, then there is something here that uh, uh, we think about when we think of the good struggle. That is, the struggle that uh, actually moves us forward, that is productive. I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, playing a game, a sport or something. And you think about uh, how long people uh, sweat and, and, and uh, uh, struggle, limbs are tired, as they continue to, to practice, to push themselves uh, uh, so that they can uh, progress uh, uh, is that right?
1: Yeah. yeah. And isn't it amazing, like what kids will tolerate from their coaches? And I don't say this sure. like to justify every way that <laughs> coaches, I've been watching a lot of Netflix documentaries about sure. just how terribly kids are treated in youth sports nowadays. So, and it's crazy. It's gone off the rails, but it's amazing. Like how kids love the struggle, you know, in a, if they're playing a sport, they love older kids. Sure. So let's not talk about getting your four year olds sure. into these like highly competitive, crazy things. Um, But they welcome it, right? They'll welcome their coaches being way harder on them than they will their their high school teachers. But there's a lot of different kind of support things that are going on there that help them validate that struggle as something Mm. meaningful and worthwhile, Mm. right? They have, like, a really clear goal, right, that they're going to improve as a player or they're going to improve as a team. They have a whole team usually supporting them. Even when you have a coach that's, like, pretty hard on you, usually, um, ideally at least, there's, like, an investment there that, that's, yeah. that the kids really feel. So how is it, like, how can we get, you know, our math classes to look more like football practice?
0: Interesting, right, nice. And,
1: and I think it has to do, so what we, I think has happened in some cases is that we've worried about giving too difficult uh, assignments And this is one of, the, one of the things is American teachers, they tend to really like to teach math through procedural learning. Sure, like, right. okay, I'll give you the formula to use, and right. you spend a lot of time practicing the formula, and you don't struggle with the concept as mm. much. Um, so, you know, how can we have, like, both the high expectations? Because a lot, a lot of, you know, especially by the time you get to high school, like, people, mm. teachers have high expectations, um, but how do we have, like, the right supports or the right kind of narratives in place that that validates it. Sure. Oh, nice. Now, one of the problems is probably that when you're playing football or basketball or baseball or or lacrosse or whatever you have it, that you're choosing to do that sport rather than something else. So admittedly, most students, some students are choosing their classes in summer.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, but that's that's interesting because I, I I'm not sure what I would think about uh, whether or not students uh, are willing to accept a higher degree of struggle and difficulty in elective courses um, because they're self-select. It's, it's it's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah is it's a really interesting question. So um, uh, in thinking about uh, some of these issues, it's quite clear uh, how uh, a concern with difficulty, struggle, etc. Uh, allows you to sort of uh, touch on uh, ancient texts and, as you mentioned, also uh, uh, work through contemporary issues. To your mind, uh, what does the field of philosophy of education uh, 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 have before it? Uh, What are some uh, contemporary struggles, uh, if you will, uh, that philosophy of education uh, uh, might need
1: to attend to? Well, as I've listened to other people answer this question on your podcast... I'd like to say, first of all, that I'm a pluralist. It's amazing how many people answer this question. And they say, oh, there's too much of that. And I'll, I think I've heard it explicitly at least once or twice, like, oh, we don't need more people to write on Plato or um, people like that. So um, I think uh, it's important that, that we follow our intellectual interests as a field. And this is coming back to this, like the diverse background that we have. I think... Right we really have a lot of different interests, but because we're a small field, like mm. we don't have feeder programs into yeah. philosophy of education, um, and arguably we wouldn't have demand if there was, um, there's a lot of concern about relevance. Mm. like, And so one thing I would say is, you know, there's two ways to think about relevance. Mm. There's relevance to people outside philosophy of education, sure. like that we're doing work that helps inform their policy or their classroom practices. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great when we do work that's relevant in that way. Right. But I think we should also think about what's relevant to us as mm-hmm. our own intellectual discipline. And that work does not necessarily need to be relevant to teachers or, or um, those in public policy. Sure. Um, and so I would advocate that we just make sure we retain a space for tending to our own intellectual mm-hmm. agenda without worrying now of course sometimes we're going to see work that even to us in the field doesn't seem interesting or relevant like just because it's interesting to me or to someone else doesn't mean sure it's interesting to the field or a good contribution to the field but i would i would say that we really need to make sure we have space to focus on on questions and problems that might not be relevant beyond us and i know this is a really like a isolationist thing to say and in other disciplines people are having the same debates you know Mm -hmm. people in in uh, political science think about their public audiences and then also and so I just worry that we have so much anxiety about the nature of our field that we we forget that we should also tend to the problems that we just think are interesting sure um, ourselves and, and work on those regardless of whether they make an impact on someone else not that we shouldn't do that work. I think we right. should. And that's one, that's one thing that can really elevate the field. Those people that do that. Sure. Thank you. Um, that really helps. Um, but, but we could have it maybe both ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds as though um, from your, your articulation there, it sounds as though we might think of the work that happens in philosophy of education as on the one hand uh, being uh, uh, instrumentally productive, but then on the other hand is having a certain type of inherent value perhaps uh, that may translate into some uh, uh, instrumentally productive activity in the future, uh, uh, but that need not be the uh, primary uh, reason that we engage the project, right? I'm, I'm thinking now of the uh, physicists Who's engaged in a particular project that might have no clear applications in the moment, but once the project is completed, uh, she then recognizes that there are some uh, uh, some applications or some interest outside of the uh, outside of the, the the field, the lab.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would say like so. Someone who's working on aren't. Yeah. Um, not every paper we produce on Arndt needs to show an implication, a practical implication. We can have some people who mine yeah. Arndt just to try and get clearer on what her ideas were on education. Sure. And then other people might use that productively, like within our field. Sure. Um, sometimes in our field, I, you've probably seen it too, like built into the evaluative criteria of uh, our conferences and our journals, sometimes we, we worry about broader audiences. And I would say there is definitely value in that work and I would encourage that work, sure. but I would also lobby for um, evaluative criteria that says, is this philosophically rigorous? Is it yeah. philosophically interesting, mm. um, does it add to our understanding of education broadly conceived? And if it mm. does those things, like that might be good enough. And if someone's working hard in the weeds on those things, others in our discipline could use it and apply it in other ways.
0: It does sound as though there's then um, uh, a real possibility for uh, uh, an admittedly small field to expand in some, in some meaningful ways. Then, Yeah,
1: yeah I, I mean, I think everyone thinks this. Like We need to be relevant. Most of us work in Schools of education where we were are the only philosopher of education and sure. we need to we need to show our value to our colleagues and that's a real thing and I think if you can't do that that's that's a problem sure. for our field because we don't have like institutional history it's it's hard to kill an English department at a sure. university right it's not so hard to kill off your philosophy of edu- philosophy of education professor because sure. right there's it's not like there's been for hundreds of years, sure. we, should, uh, we should think indeed about, about our broader audiences and how we can meaningfully contribute. And I would just say, let's not lose sight of the ideas that are really interesting to us and complex and worthy of thinking about. And if there's enough of us that actually think those ideas are interesting, then that's okay. Don't worry about being relevant to others. <laughs>
0: Avi, thank you so much for that note of encouragement as we think about uh, the ways in which we might engage in the field of philosophy of education moving forward. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.